Amen. Colossians chapter 3. Um, let's just go back and pick up with verse 1 just to be reminded of the context and the setting, of course. It's important that we do that. So verse 1, therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. What a great exhortation today. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ is, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Well, we've been taking our time to work through this important epistle, gleaning from it as much as we possibly can, understanding that we have left much behind, but nonetheless, We have been encouraged and exhorted to be reminded of Jesus Christ and who He is and what He has done and who we are in Him. Paul's focus, of course, here is the idea of our union with Jesus Christ. He is is exhorting us and teaching us this very important doctrine, and and from out of it comes so much great application for us. And this is indeed what he is doing here, teaching us what indeed transpired in our salvation. When God saves us, he impresses his image upon us, making us new creation in Christ Jesus, robing us in a new self, if you will, the picture that Paul gives us there, creating a new humanity. The biblical anthropology, if you will, contrary to what the world is, we are uniquely different. And because we are uniquely different, we do uniquely different things. The title of this message and the series of messages that will flow out of these passages is called Chosen for Holiness because verse 12 reminds us of the fact, and as Mike did last Sunday so eloquently and precisely, our role in the context of who we are in this new humanity was foreordained by God before the very foundation of the world and secured in the finished work of Jesus Christ and sealed by the Holy Spirit. And that is significant, and I think it ought to impress you the magnitude of this passage that we will be looking at in verse 12 as we transition out of verse 11 is indeed profound. It is ultimately um, a passage that drives us to the place where we will have to acknowledge 
that we are indeed the chosen of God, that He has created us for a very specific purpose that flows out of our election. And we don't shy away from that word here at Community Bible Church. We love that word. We rejoice. And as Mike talked about last Sunday, it is indeed something that drives us to praise our great Savior and our God. And so, as we will consider this, we have to be reminded of the idea that Paul is communicating to us here, and that is that Christians indeed act and think and live like they are Christians. Shocking, isn't it? But that's indeed the case, and it's something that the church has forgotten. It's something that the church has set aside and has replaced it with all sorts of pragmatism and ideas and, and, and secular philosophies. And indeed, Paul says that the significance of our transformation, the significance of this renewal, the significance of our regeneration is so wonderful and profound that it breaks down every barrier that exists within the world. And so in verse 11, we read, that this renewal, this new creation that we are in Him, that there is no distinction. And, and Paul was very emphatic, noting that the language here really reads, in which there cannot be, in which there is not any. He obliterates any type of concept that incorporates into it in terms of Christianity, the idea that we bring these things back in that we somehow embrace them and make them part and parcel of what we are and who we are and how we interact with each other, claiming our identities at the exclusion of who we are in Jesus Christ to make certain that our particular rights are asserted above and beyond certain other groups. This is ripping the church apart today. It's destroying us inside. And it has to be stopped. The answer to what we're facing today in the church as it relates to the incorporation of critical race theory and, and social justice and all of these other things is to be reminded by Paul, as he is doing here, as to the fact that those things are gone. They ought not to exist. And as we get into the idea of what God has done for us, we will also understand that even if you fall within one of these categories, you don't continue to assert a right in order to posture yourself or push, position yourself against other brothers and sisters in Christ. That's wrong. It's wrong, and if it happens, it will destroy the church. And so Paul here reminds us that the, the particular false teacher that was in the midst of these believers in Colossae was preaching a gospel that was dividing some are in, some are out, this kind of the idea that's being communicated. This is what the false teacher was doing. If you hearken back to chapter 2, he had claimed that he had had this special experience, that he had a vision of the temple, and angels were speaking to him, and he was getting these extra words, and he was incorporating those into his preaching and teaching. He was reimposing a lot of legalism, don't touch, don't taste, all those things that we saw. Paul would say those all sound really clever and intelligent, but they are of no use, no value against fighting sin. What is of value and use against fighting sin is to be reminded of who you are in Jesus Christ, what it is that God did when he saved you, to be reminded of the fact that your transformation into the new creation in Jesus Christ is so radical that it changes your perception of reality and your actions with other people. And so to claim those things is contrary to the gospel. It indeed is another gospel if it's proclaimed. That's sobering, is it not? 
It's sobering when you consider how preeminent now this issue is in the church, how it's being incorporated into Bible conferences by men who ought to know better, and how it's being incorporated into books and teaching and small groups and Sunday school classes and vacation Bible school and Christian schools. We are being inundated with this other gospel. And friends, we have to be reminded of the fact that it is another gospel. A gospel that divides is not the gospel. It's not a gospel that teaches love and love and brings unity as we see later on in this passage in Colossians 3. No, it is contrary, it's antithetical to everything that Paul is teaching. As we know, the false teacher here was saying that some were in the know and others are not. That's contrary to what Paul is emphasizing. As we know, the gospel of Jesus Christ unites. It overcomes social, racial, religious, and cultural distinctions to make all believers stand on the level ground of grace before God in Christ. We all stand together in that context. And to begin to assert our rights against each other eclipses that and makes us preeminent and not Christ. As we know from Paul's teaching, the grace of God coming down to man is given without regard to any distinction. And that grace which operates on a vertical axis from God to man then goes horizontal between the recipients of such grace. And those same distinctions fade away. Isn't that remarkable? They fade away in the fellowship of those who make up the new self. So in this new humanity... This, this, this picture of a Christian anthropology, there is no distinction. That's what it says. So why are we talking so much? Why are so many books being written about this? And why are we being torn asunder by it? Well, I can hear the hiss of Satan behind all of it. And shame on those who are propagating it. They need to be marked. Paul will tell us in Romans that we are to mark the divisive man. We are to be alert to false teachers, those who would come in and rob us of our liberty in Christ, those who would ensnare us in their secular ideas and capture us in their cleverness, if you will, just like what's happening here in Colossae. I think it's appropriate and providential that God has us here right now. Isn't that amazing? With all that's going on in the world, God has Community Bible Church right here in verse 11 and verse 12. There's a reason for that. And the reason for it is because the church of Christ is being assaulted on all fronts and from inside. And from inside. But the beauty of the passage is, is so remarkable as he concludes with this, this, this great crescendo, if you will, with regard to our focus on Jesus Christ. Now, I think it's something else that's important that we need to keep in mind as we begin to make this transition, it's, it's, it's significant to me that Paul does not say that the categories in and of themselves are not to exist in this world. They do. There are Jews and there are Greeks. Greeks. There are circumcised and uncircumcised. There are slave and free. There are barbarians and Scythians. I don't know a Scythian personally, but they're out there somewhere. I could say that they're Pittsburghians, but I won't do that. But nonetheless, I think it's significant that Paul, Paul anticipates that, that even in the context of these categories existing within the world, that as we come into the church, 
even though they exist, we need to forget them in the context of our relationship with each other and not claim any rights associated with how we feel about being within that group. We know this because of what Paul does in chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. He's certainly concerned with how people treat each other, but the category still exists. It's interesting that the person, the two categories of people in there still have to love and be united to each other. We see that in the book of Philemon, do we not? Philemon is what? He's a slave owner. Who does he own? Onesimus. What did Onesimus do? He carried Colossians back to the Colossians to read. That's remarkable. That's remarkable. Here we see that these distinctions are not ultimately found in Christ and are not to be emphasized within the body of Christ, his church, by the redeemed. Indeed, in his letter to the young pastor Timothy in 1 Timothy verse, chapter 6, verse 1, he reminds Timothy to teach those within his congregation that they are to count those who are slaves in his congregation to count their own masters worthy of honor. Oh, wait a minute. I thought they were supposed to claim their microaggressions. I thought they were supposed to march. I thought they were supposed to claim all of their political rights and bring them into the church and divide the church over it and demand that the church acquiesce to their demands, whatever they may be, in order to make them feel like they're okay now. And that applies to both categories. Do you see what's happened? Do you see how we've been sold a bill of goods with regard to this issue? Notice Paul's lack of social justice or critical race theory or any other theory for that matter. It is the fact that their new humanity in Jesus Christ eclipses everything. This is why he says what he does at the end of verse 11, Christ is all and in all. And that is ultimately the measure, the unity that is brought into the body of Christ. It's Jesus Christ. That is the focus, not me, not my microaggressions, not my political agenda, not my drive to find some justice for myself or the people with whom I'm associated, but to be united with each other in Jesus Christ, recognizing who I was before I was in him, now that I am in him, we all rejoice together, whether I'm slave or free or whatever, we come together and that's what we exalt amongst each other. I see you as the redeemed of Christ. The slave comes into the church and he sees his master, not as his master, but as a brother in Jesus Christ, one who has been redeemed by God. The Jew comes into the congregation and he sees the Greek or the uncircumcised and he says he is my brother in Christ. That eclipses everything. That overarches any concern, any consideration. And I will say to you this, that would be a big deal for a Jew. That was hard for them because they had with them all of the momentum of history as it relates to being the chosen people of God. We are the ones Think about that for a minute. If anybody had any right to claim anything, it's them. They, they get to hold on to that. They look at that. But Paul says to them, and he's a Jew too, no, no, Christ is all. Christ is everything. I'm first a Christian. I'm first your brother in Christ. I am nothing else. I am in Christ. And you are in Christ, and that's how I see you. This is what we need to understand as believers today. 
I want to read to you something from a chap named John Davenant, who was the Bishop of Salisbury. Now, Salisbury is this little town in England, and there is a massive cathedral there. And in fact, it's a cathedral that has the highest spire of all cathedrals in England. It's impressive. Um, And I had the occasion to visit there once, and it was quite remarkable. He was the pastor of of that bishopry, if you will, in that time frame, 1627. He wrote a commentary on the book of Colossians which I found interesting. He was also one of the delegates to the Synod of Dort, uh, which is significant from a church history standpoint. If you don't know much about that, I would encourage you to study that. He was considered to be one of the pillars of, of defending um, uh, a, a position that rejected Arminianism, and that was being discussed, of course, at the Synod of Dort and issues related to it. But look at this. He writes as follows. As he, as he unpackages the meaning of this, and I think what's significant of this, his lectures were delivered in Latin at, uh, at Cambridge, and, and this is an excerpt from one of those, those lectures. He was teaching other, other men to be pastors, uh, which I think is significant. And he says this, when, he, when we talk about Christ is all in and all. What the Jews hope for from the privilege of their nation and the sign of the covenant, the Greeks from their philosophy, princes and great men from their dignity, all these things and others far more excellent, the man that is born again enjoys in Christ. So, so think about that for a minute. And this is what's remarkable to me. So Paul says that, that Christ is all and that we are all in Christ. The joy of that ought to be of such magnitude that I can't even begin to consider asserting my own personal right about anything. Because anything that I have in Christ is far more excellent than being a Jew, being a Greek, being a prince, being smart, knowing how to read, how to think, being all those things are eclipsed by the fact that I am in Jesus Christ, that in verse 10, he impressed his image on me. He made me new creation in Jesus Christ. He clothed me like he did Adam and Eve in the garden. And when I begin to ponder that, I can't even see that man as my master. I see him as the redeemed of God that causes me to love him. It causes all the foibles and the fears that I have about what he might be doing to me to be eclipsed by the fact that he like me, is the redeemed of Christ. That's that's the important issue. This is what Paul is saying to them. Now, the false teacher comes in. No, no, we need all these divisions. Isn't that remarkable? Isn't it amazing that that's exactly what's happening in the church today? It's mind-boggling. Are these guys even reading the book? No, they're not. It's deconstructionism is what it is. They're deconstructing by ignoring it and incorporating their own ideas into the church. Now think about this. Davenant goes on to say this. On the other hand, whatever blemish there may be thought in being sprung from Gentile or barbarian, in being born in uncircumcision, or in any low condition or mean station, All these things are divested of all disgrace and dishonor through Christ living in the renewed 
And consequently, this renewed state is of the utmost value. He catches both. You think you got it all? Forget it. You think you don't have it all? Forget it. You're all in Christ. Now, I will say this. For whatever reason, according to God's sovereign plan and providence, these categories exist within the world. Our call as Christians is to step out of them and beyond them and to make certain that we do that, to make certain that the gospel is a reality in our lives by, ref- by the way that we interact with other people, how we engage with them, what we assert and what we claim. This is, this is so important for the church today, and I fear... I fear that we are losing our grip on on this important issue to such a point that the church is now going to become just nothing more than the arm of some political party, left or right. And I guess we can say there's no distinction, there is no Republican and Democrat. How's that? I'll be an equal opportunity offender today. Not that the positions that people take on particular issues aren't important. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that within the church, within the body of Christ, the church should not be divided as it relates to our assertion of our rights flowing out of these categories. That's important. And so as we look at the end of verse 11, We are reminded of this important transition that Paul then begins to make. In verse 11, we notice that the word but is there at the end of the passage. What that causes me to do is to begin to not think about the categories, but to be reminded of the fact that the categories are subsumed and rectified within Jesus Christ. And of course, that only makes sense for Paul to do that because if you go back into chapter 1 and chapter 2, we see how wonderful Christ is. I mean, for Pete's sake, go back to chapter 1. And we look and we see all the wonderful things that are part and parcel of Jesus Christ. Verse 13 of chapter 1, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. And we're not done. Verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place where? In some things. In some, no, 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 don't do that to me. I get to assert my rights. I want my, I want my platform. Don't you take my platform from me. No. He is preeminent over everything everything. He will come to have first place in everything. There's eschatological implications to that passage too, looking forward to the consummation of the age as he returns and and takes into himself all things that belong to him. Verse 19, 
For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And of course, that wonderful passage, verse 21, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile and might engage in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach so you can assert all your microaggressions and foibles and things that you want. Is that what yours says? No. And so using that that we have, Colossians 1, we go back to 3, and we understand now why Paul reaches back into that Christology. He says as a reminder, don't forget Don't forget who Jesus Christ is. Don't forget what you have in him. Don't forget the magnitude and the wonder of who he is. Don't forget that you you have this triune God expressed physically in the person of Jesus Christ who is working and bringing about a reconciliation, who has redeemed you, transferred you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, who has ransomed you, paid the purchase price, Don't forget that. You see, it is remembering that. It is remembering what Jesus Christ has done and who he is that causes you to step out of the categories. It causes you to reject them as things by which you are now identified. Do you see this? This is so very important. When I understand who I am in Jesus Christ, when I appreciate the magnitude of that union with him, I then no longer claim a former identity because I am a new identity in Jesus Christ with new capacities and a different way of thinking. This is what Paul is driving home for us here. The language here at the end of verse 11 stands as a strong contrast to the distinctions that Paul has just laid out before us. And the word but makes that distinction stand out. Paul makes this amazing assertion that Christ is all and in all. It's interesting that in the original Greek language, there's no verb. Uh, The word is is inserted to, to smooth the reading, if you will, and, to, and to, make it, uh, to make it more understandable, perhaps. But in the Greek, it's uh, uh, all, all in all, in, all in all Christ. The emphasis becomes Christ in the small phrase. Our eyes, our minds are driven to Christ. It's very succinct, but very powerful. And this word Christ is placed at the end of the sentence for emphasis in the original Greek. We lose some of that in the, in the translation, but originally Christ is even preeminent in the context of its placement in the passage in the original language. So what do we mean by saying that Christ is all? We need to understand that. That's a, that's a reasonable question, pastor. What does it mean that Christ is all? Well, the, the, the language here indicates to us that, that, that it's Christ is, is all things. 
in terms of all the things that are important and all things being subsumed in Him and existing in Him and held together by Him. It is Christ who is the totality of all things. Isn't this wonderful? As we just read, Christ created all things. Chapter 1, verse 16, He sustains all things, verse 17. He's supreme over all things, in, in verse 17. And as such, Christ is all. He is the totality of all things. Now, what he is not is that he is not a tree. We are not pantheists. So don't go out and hug a tree for a variety of reasons today. You don't need to do that. But we can appreciate the fact that he created the tree. He is the creator of all things. We are not pantheists, as some would say, that, that God is, that everything is God, and therefore we worship rocks and frogs and trees and, and other things, toads and snail darters and horned owls and other things. Paul is saying here that Christ is the sum and substance of everything, and everything is subsumed with him and in him. He ought to be and is the singular point of our focus with regard to anything related to origin, consistency, subsistence in the future. We also should understand that he is necessary, he is necessary for our continuance. He is necessary. And so it's both logical and appropriate to speak of Christ as all because well, he is. He is all. So, in the application of God's grace, then, Christ engulfs all racial. Now, think about this. I want you to think about this. When I understand that, when I understand that Christ is all, what happens then is this. Because remember, I'm thinking differently, right? I'm no longer the other guy that I was before God saved me. I'm new creation in Jesus Christ. The image of God, the image of Christ has been impressed upon me. Verse 10. So, in the application of that, understanding what God's grace means, I then appreciate the fact that Christ engulfs all racial, religious, and cultural differences with his indiscriminate grace. All of it is obliterated. I have to understand that. Christ is all means anyone needs to become a fully welcomed and functioning participant in the new body of Christ. There's nothing added. We don't claim new categories, new divisions, old divisions. Nothing new is needed in that context. Nothing old is needed in that context. We just remember that Christ is all and we move forward. And the nonsense stops. Now, interestingly here too, Paul speaks of this fact, this, this Christ is all idea as an established fact. As an established fact. That Christ is reigning and ruling and that the preeminence of Christ is now. It's not future, although there is a future manifestation of it as well. The consummation of the age. When the totality of this will be realized. That certainly has end times implications. But we have to understand now, in the context of who we are, this is our reality. 
We're not waiting for this. It's now. It's right now. In verse 18 of chapter 1, it says he's also head of the body, the church, and he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. And so we have the, the, the already, but the not yet. You see it? So there's, there's fulfillment yet. We are complete now, but there's going to be a final consummation where the completeness will be compl- full, finished, total, completely done. And so we rejoice in the fact of what he has done now. He's, he's dealt with that issue. Look what he does in verse 12 as we begin to make this transition. And in closing, I just want to touch briefly on what Paul begins to do here in verse 12 because it's quite remarkable. Christ is all and in all. That's, that's a statement, that's a Christological statement that you can take to the bank. We, we grab it, we hold on to it. We, we rest our anchor in that secure, sovereign mooring. And then in verse 12, so. No, it's not so what. It's so. There's a consequence. There's, there's, a, there's, a, necessary, there's a necessary action to what has just been laid out for us in the preceding 11 verses. There is a culmination, if you will, of the reality of the truths that are communicated in verses 1 through 11 that then translates into behavior. Now, remember, the title of the series of messages I'll be presenting on these passages is Chosen for Holiness. Chosen for Holiness. What we see beginning in verse 12 is Paul making that very important point because he says, so, so as those who have been chosen of God, so he's reaching back into the theology that's already there and he's going to continue to build on it. So remember this too, as those who have been chosen of God. Now there's the doctrine of election as plain as you can say it. I, I mean, friend, I'm going to tell you, it's there. Yeah, we're not making it up. The doctrine of election is throughout Scripture. The doctrine of election is communicated repeatedly by all of the apostles in Christ himself. And so we need to understand it. And we need to appreciate it. And we need to, to rest in it. Yeah, we can actually rest in the doctrine of election. But pastor, it's so contentious. Well, it's only contentious because you made it that way. The doctrine of election is a place of surety and comfort. It's a place that you want to take people who are beleaguered, who are challenged, who are facing difficulties. Do you not? Where else do you want to go? Okay, let's talk about you then. Let's just do you right now. Let's just talk about what you want and all the things, and let's just rest in that for a while. That's not going to help. That might get you through the afternoon, but it's not going to get you through life. It's not going to get you through the challenges that you face when you're challenged by all sorts of things, family issues, nation issues, cultural issues, church issues, all the issues of life. Election gives me the sovereign moorings and the action 
the plan of a triune God who saw fit, and this is utterly overwhelming, to save me. Specifically, my name is written in the Lamb's book of life by the hand of God before the foundation of the world, and nobody can erase it ever. Ever. So what am I going to tell somebody who's in the midst of this type of turmoil? How am I going to secure, as a pastor, a motivation for them to live out the reality of their faith. Isn't it interesting that he doesn't give them five steps to security in themselves? He doesn't give them seven steps to how to get along with your neighbor. He doesn't give them 15 steps to have a better marriage. No. He takes them back to the doctrine of election, for Pete's sake. Are you serious? Yeah, he does. Right back in it. You think you're kind of crawling out of the deep end of the pool. You're gasping. Oh, I can't take anymore, Paul. You're bre- you can't go. Where's the, where's the edge of the pool? What does he do? He pushes you back in. It's like your dad would do to you when you're in the pool. You remember that? You're coming along. You get on the edge. Your dad comes over with his foot, and he pushes you back in. <laughs> you're spurting and gasping. Dad, I can't take anymore. Oh, you can do it. Suck it up, soldier. It's just water, but they're my lungs, Dad. No, it doesn't matter. (laughs) Grow gills. (laughs) So he takes me right, he just throws me right back in. And the issue for Paul then is the fact that election speaks to the idea that God has created you, brought you into existence in Christ for a reason. Remember, election is about God choosing for his son a people that he would give to him as a gift to inhabit the new kingdom. He's creating a population of people to reign and rule with Jesus Christ. God's doing that. That's the action of the triune God. That's Paul's, that was Mike's point last week out of Ephesians chapter 1. That's exactly what's going on in Ephesians chapter 1. And he just doesn't cobble together a bunch of sinners in the context of, oh, here, here's, these, here's these worthless, reckless people. No, he, he, he brings them together in the context of their redemption and he gives them to Jesus Christ. That's a beautiful thought. And so for Paul, he then says, okay, the false teacher isn't going here. He's giving him a bunch of rules, and he's creating division, and he's doing all this. I'm just going to give him the doctrine of election. By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this is exactly what Paul does. And so he gives it to them as a motivation to do what? Love each other. For unity. We'll see that at the conclusion of the thought that Paul communicates. You see that as we... Uh, Go back to verse 14. Beyond all these things, put on the love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Where's that love come out of? What's the bond? The bond is Christ, right? But you're united to Christ by God's sovereign purpose and intention through what? Election. And so, now you say to yourself, well, pastor, then what? I don't know. Is the E on my head? I don't know. I don't see E's on your heads. I just see people sitting Counting bricks. (laughs) No. We trust God to do the work. We trust the Spirit to regenerate. 
We trust the triune God to bring into existence these people, and he will. That's a fact. As he spoke the world into existence, so he speaks his people into existence, and so they do exist, and they will continue to exist, and they will reign and rule forever with Jesus Christ in his kingdom. Do you see this? That motivates us. So next week, what we're going to begin to do is unpackage how this plays out with how we interact with each other. Because you'll notice what happens then is that because of who I am in Jesus Christ, because I have been elected by God, redeemed unto Christ to do a particular thing, I do a particular thing. I put on a demonstration of the reality, first and foremost, a heart of compassion. Oh, you mean I got to deal with me again? Yep. Yep. More of you being dealt with in Scripture is not good as you're being transformed and renewed. Remember, you're chosen for holiness. Chosen for holiness. Do you know Jesus Christ? Are you resting in his finished work? Have you turned to him in faith, looking to him, not just as someone who aids you along the way, but someone who is the ultimate object of your complete faith and trust, Look, knowing that you're inadequate completely, not faithing in your faithfulness, not resting in what you're doing, hoping that Jesus Christ will come along and give you a little push at the end. No, faith in Christ alone, fully in Christ alone, fully in him alone. If you don't know Jesus Christ, then I can say to you this morning, we're promised that, that salvation isn't a trick. It's, it's very simple. Call upon the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. There's nothing simpler in all the world. Nothing. Call upon his name and you shall be saved. Faith in Christ. Looking to Christ. Resting in his finished work. That's what we get to do as the redeemed of God. Lord, we love you. Thank you for this exhortation this morning from your word. Thank you for the reminder that Christ is preeminent, that he is all and in all, that everything that we are is subsumed in everything that he is, that there is nothing that he is not connected to. There is nothing that he does not control. There is nothing that he does not govern and and cause to exist, including us, the redeemed. Thank you for this message. Thank you for this exhortation. Thank you for this reminder of what the gospel is all about, what it does, what it creates, and why we can rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Forgive us, Lord, for falling into the traps of the false teachers. Forgive us for embracing our our categories and our divisions. Help us, Lord, to be people who look and rest in Christ. We praise you in his name. Amen. God bless you.